What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. Man, it has been a very, very packed past 24 hours. Joel Embiid scored 70 points last night, and that's not even the leading uh, <laughs> headline right now in the NBA, uh, which would be Adrian Griffin getting fired from the Milwaukee Bucks after just 43 games into his first year with the team. We also had a trade with Terry Rozier being sent to Miami, um, but we got a lot to talk about. So with that said, let's go ahead and get right into it. So I'm going to start off with the honestly shocking news that Adrian Griffin has been fired as the head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bucks currently sit at 30 and 13, the number two seed in the Eastern Conference. They have the second ranked offense in the NBA right now and the 21st ranked defense. Um, yet their net rating is only plus four, which is only 10th in the NBA. And based on that net rating, if you uh, do the math, it actually turns out that they should actually be four games worse than they have been thus far. So they've won some close games, maybe uh, been a little lucky in um, some of those games. But regardless, um, they played well overall. I mean, 30 and 13 is a really good record, which is why I am genuinely surprised that this happened. We do not see guys get fired this early into a contract really ever. Um, the fact that Monty Williams still has a job and he does not is pretty hilarious. Um, but while I am shocked by this news, I think it's the right move because Adrian Griffin has looked really in over his head at many times throughout this season. Um, and really my biggest concern with Milwaukee, while the popular take is that it's their defense and it hasn't looked great, which don't get me wrong, their defense has not been great. But my biggest concern with them has been Adrian Griffin. He has not looked up to the job to this point. And I think personally a lot of their defensive woes have to do with him if you just look at the schemes. So just to contrast from the past four or five years under Mike Putenholzer, which uh, had a ton of success uh, with Milwaukee, especially in the regular season. But schemes are meant for teams to maximize the personnel that you have. And so Bootenholzer did a phenomenal job of that. He played very, very heavy drop coverage. He packed the paint. He let Brooke Lopez and Giannis sit back and guard the rim, two of the absolute best in the league at doing that. Uh, Giannis, a guy who's won a Defensive Player of the Year. Brooke Lopez, a guy who finished second in that award just last season. Um, and look, with those two guys anchoring this defense, they had the second uh, best defensive rebound percentage in the NBA. They defended the corner three extremely well. They forced you into long twos and above the break threes, which, as most people know, are the lowest percentage shots you can take on the court. And really, they were willing to live and die by this. They would let you shoot threes at the top of the key all day long. And they actually led the NBA for four straight seasons under Bud um, in allowing the most non-corner threes in the league. But with that being said, they were also the best in the NBA at preventing the corner three last season. They were also the best in the NBA at forcing the long two-pointer in the NBA last season. And this 
scheme and playing style of uh, the drop coverage allowed them to maximize Brooke Lopez because he is an absolutely elite rim protector. Just last year, they were the third lowest uh, team in terms of shots allowed at the rim, so deterring people from going into the paint. They had the seventh best uh, field goal percentage allowed at the rim. They were the second best at preventing free throws for the other team. Overall, they were the first team in the NBA in terms of effective field goal percentage against. They had the fourth best defensive uh, rating overall, and they were also great in transition. They had the fourth lowest transition points added per 100 possessions. So they were extremely solid across the board. They maximized Lopez anchoring the defense. They let Giannis um, anchor the defense at times as well, as well as Rome as a help help side defender um, alongside Lopez. Of course, they had a guy in Drew Holiday who's one of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA as well. But this scheme worked really well for them. They were able to win 55-plus games, 60-plus games multiple times under Bud. And while they had their offensive shortcomings and postseason shortcomings throughout his tenure, at least on the defensive end, you knew they were going to be very, very solid uh, consistently. Um, Adrian Griffin, on the other hand, basically decided to implement nearly the opposite defensive scheme. So instead of drop coverage, playing guys back, letting them shoot, um, giving the ball handler handler space, he decided to put heavy, heavy pressure on the ball, to blitz the ball handlers, bring the bigs out to hedge on some ball screens. And this just did not work well for them. They just did not have the personnel to succeed with that sort of defensive scheme. If you think about what are the pros of doing that, pressuring the ball like that the the main thing that you get out of it is it ideally you're forcing a lot of turnovers and you can get out in transition um which is not something this team has done well at all in fact even with that scheme this team is dead last in the nba in terms of turnover percentage and look they were dead last last year but that was by design uh coach bud was not trying to force turnovers they were trying to let the offense run and then force them into a shot that's a low percentage shot that was by design this design was completely designed to force turnovers and they've done literally anything but that they're still dead last in the nba and they're forcing weak defenders and dame malik beasley etc to apply this pressure out on the perimeter and as a result it's pulling guys like brooke lopez away from the paint and it leaves the lane wide open for guys to drive to the basket so it's totally minimizing guys like Brooke, like Brooke Lopez. Um, this is a guy who thrives in the paint, elite rim protector, but he really struggles in the perimeter. He's not a guy that's going to go out and guard guards particularly well. And if, if they get beat while he's out there, there's just absolutely no resistance whatsoever at the rim. Um, and then you throw in a guy like Bobby Portis, who's not even a good rim protector, but he's put in those situations as well. They just have not maximized what they've got on this team by changing this defensive scheme so drastically. Um, and it's night and day if you look at the numbers. I mean, last year they were fourth in defensive rating. They're up to 21st this year. Last year, first in effective field goal percentage, ninth this year. Percentage of shots allowed at the rim, third last year up to 11th this year. Uh, field goal percentage allowed at the rim, seventh last year, 15th this year. Free throw rate, second last year, 10th this year. Defensive rebound rate, second last year, 11th this year. Turnover percentage, 30th last year, like I said, but that was fully by design. 30th this year, and they're intentionally trying to force turnovers and failing last year they were fourth in transition defense this year they're 13th um, and they're also allowing the most transition opportunities um, per possession in the entire NBA this season which 
does have its pros because you think, oh, well, they, they must be attacking the offensive glass because that's allowing teams to get out in um, transition when uh, they're not getting those boards. But they're not offensive rebounding either. They're only 25th in offensive rebound percentage. So <laughs> their transition defense, they're just not getting back is the issue. It's not like they're attacking the glass and it's leading to that. And I know this is really, really easy to blame on personnel. Um Look, is Dame a significant drop-off defensively from Drew Holiday? Of course he is. Is Malik Beasley also very bad on defense and at least a somewhat of a downgrade from a guy like Grayson Allen who they had last year? Sure, of course he is. And could this system that he that Griffin implemented with Drew Holiday work if they had a, a Drew Holiday, for example? Maybe. It could. I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> it hasn't worked at even remotely. And I also just want to say that I get the personnel concerns, but it's a little overblown in my opinion. The the Dame to Drew or the Drew to Dame uh, swap is obviously noteworthy. But outside of that, their rotations are really, really similar. They still have three of their same top four guys with Middleton, Giannis, and Lopez. And they still have Crowder, Connaughton, Portis off the bench. I mean, those are basically their top three guys off the bench last year. It's their top three guys off the bench this year. And they added in guys like uh, Bochamp and Andre Jackson, who have actually played pretty well defensively for them. Um, And it's not like Grayson Allen is some defensive stalwart either. He's fine. He's passable. We've seen him get attacked in the playoffs. So I, I just think that the personnel thing is overblown. I don't think you can go from being really, really, really good at something to bad at something with just the swap of two players, unless it's like, <laughs> unless we're talking about like uh, going from Jokic to like a <laughs> DeAndre Jordan, for example, um, something that drastic. But look, Drew Holiday, all-star player, Dame Lillard, all-star player. They're good at different things, but it, it, I just think the schemes like, I don't know if Griffin was told by the team to switch up the schemes uh, from what Bud had done because they thought it didn't work. Or maybe these are just this is just his philosophy. This is how he believes defenses should be run. But regardless, it doesn't matter why he did it. It does not fit the personnel they have. And Bud's system was not the issue. It worked really, really well. They were a top four defense three of his five seasons. They were top 10 four of his fives, and they were never worse than 14th in terms of defensive rating. His issues were not the foundations of his schemes or what he believed in. It was just his lacks of adjustments and flexibility, especially in the postseason. And so there's like Griffin easily could have used a lot of those same schemes, but then just been more willing to pivot. And I think that's what Milwaukee wanted. But he pivoted up front without even seeing the results. Um, but Bud's system gave an unbelievable baseline and floor just to be successful on that end. But um, yeah, the schemes just weren't good. Anyone with eyes could see that it was just not working. He didn't have the personnel to pull it off. And when it wasn't working, I, he pivoted a little. They were going back to some of the stuff they were doing before. But I'm not even sure if that was because he wanted to go back or because the players were trying to get back to going back to what they know. And so he just wasn't maximizing the cards he was dealt, which is one of the main jobs of a head coach. And the the worst thing is that's not even the main issue here. He reportedly had just completely lost the locker room already. Multiple players, including Giannis, were 
unhappy with him. They had lost faith in him, and which is shocking because he was really only hired because Giannis endorsed this guy. This was a Giannis stamp of approval type hire when it was made. At least that's how it was advertised. Um, and if you already lost your biggest supporter halfway through your first season, then it must have been pretty bad. Um, and honestly, Giannis has looked unhappy and dejected at times throughout the season, even though they've been winning. He just has looked kind of out of it at times and angry or I, I don't know, <laughs> just not like his normal happy self. Um, and then this is not even to mention the Terry Stotts thing. Look, Terry Stotts is a guy that's been in this league for 30 years now. He's very well respected. He was an assistant coach for the NBA champion Dallas Mavericks in 2011. He led four separate top three offenses in nine seasons uh, with Portland and Damian Lillard. So he's got a ton of experience at building elite offenses around this team's exact point guard that they just traded for. And that was with CJ McCollum as a second option and Yusuf Nurkic as a third option. So give this guy Giannis and Middleton and other the other weapons this team has. And I can only imagine that he would have done wonders for them offensively um, and certainly helped them there. Not that that's been an issue for them. They are the second-rated offense right now. But regardless, it can't hurt to have a experienced uh, voice in the room, not only from a head coaching perspective, but from a guy who knows what works with Dame. And so I just think, it, based on his track record and <laughs> the fact that Griffin's already out now, I have to assume that the reason this went south was mostly Griffin's doing. I mean, I, for those of you who don't know, Terry Stotts was an assistant coach and he quit in in training camp because of a, a incident during one of the practices where Griffin apparently screamed at him in front of everybody and he was like, fuck this, I, I'm out of here, um, which at the time was concerning for me too. We hadn't even seen them play, and I thought it was concerning, and then we see them play, and it's only, it only adds to it, so what are the things a coach is supposed to do? They're supposed to maximize the talent at hand, specifically with schemes, and put them in a position to succeed. He did not do that even remotely. They're supposed to be a leader and a motivator in the locker room. He had already lost the locker room, not even a, a full season into his tenure, you're supposed to manage the personalities on the team. He clearly couldn't do that even with his own coaching staff. And so, to me, this is a great move. I, <laughs> Like I said, my biggest concern for this team was Griffin. He's This is the risk that you have when you hire a rookie head coach with zero experience. You're, you don't know what you're getting. And a lot of teams can afford to ride it out see what they've got, maybe give them some time to go through those growing pains. But this is not one of those teams. The Bucks, they had to rip this Band-Aid off immediately. They cannot sit here and wait for growing pains of a young coach. If they know he's not the guy, you got to get him out of there immediately because their window is right now. Um, and it seems like they knew he wasn't the guy. And so this kind of proactive move is... It could save their season. And it could save the championship window that they have with Giannis and Dame because... I mean, if you look across the NBA landscape, almost everybody was concerned with him. People clearly internally were concerned. The team was clearly concerned, the players. And the media has been concerned about him for a while because it just hasn't worked. He's looked in over his head since the very first game. And I know the record is good because you can get by on talent. 
But I, I genuinely applaud the Bucks for doing this because I don't think a lot of other teams would have had the the balls to actually pull the trigger on this. So, um, th- yeah, there are windows now. They cannot afford to sit around and wait for a coach to try to figure things out on the fly because they might only have two, maybe three max, like, all-star level seasons at a dame left and they got to maximize those now and go for it so um i know doc rivers has been mentioned as the leading candidate to replace him look i mean doc's got his flaws there's no way about it he blew a 3-1 lead in 03 with the magic to the pistons he blew a 3-2 lead in 09 with the celtics to orlando uh, in 2010 with Boston, he blew a 3-2 lead to the Lakers. In 2012 with Boston, he th- blew a 3-2 lead to Miami. 2015 with the Clippers, he blew a 3-1 lead to Houston. 2016 with the Clippers, he blew a 2-0 lead to Portland. 2017 with the Clippers, he blew a 2-1 lead to Utah. 2020 with the Clippers, he blew a 3-1 lead to Denver. <laughs> There's more, sorry. Uh, in 21 with the Sixers, he blew a 2-1 lead to Atlanta. And in 23, just last year with the Sixers, he blew a 3-2 lead to Boston. So look, that's a lot of blown leads. It's If it happens that many times, you got to think it comes back to the coach at some point. However, Doc has, at the very least, a high floor. This is a guy who is pretty much a lock to make the second round every single season that he coaches. Um has he had some really good players? Of course. but And has have all these blown leads been his, his fault? Of course not either. I mean, Chris Paul is also a guy that is known to, at times, struggle in big situations in the playoffs. So that was his starting point guard for four or five years. Then you get to Philly, and he had Embiid, and then he had Embiid and Harden. And then he had Ben Simmons. I mean, these are all guys that have consistently been unreliable or come up short in the playoffs. So... His players haven't exactly helped him out. But, of course, you can't absolve him of the, the blame given just the, the sheer quantity of uh, shortcomings in those playoffs. But I just it's still an upgrade. There's no doubt about it. You know, he's not going to lose the locker room, especially not after half a season. He's He knows how to manage stars. He's coached Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, Rajon Rondo, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Joel Embiid, James Harden, Trace McGrady. I mean, this guy has been around stars his whole career. So I'm not worried at all about him not meshing with Giannis or Dame. He definitely would be totally fine with those guys. He's going to have respect from those guys. He's won a championship as a head coach in this league. And he's had some really good teams, and they've come up short, but... You could argue this is the most talented team probably he's had since the early big three days with Boston. I mean, Giannis and Dame is probably the best duo he's had. Um, I know Kawhi and Paul George was formidable, but they couldn't stay healthy throughout most of their tenure. Chris Paul and Blake Griffin also, same thing. They were injured repeatedly. Like when they blew the 2-0 lead to Portland in 2016, Blake was out the whole series, and then Chris Paul got hurt for the last two games. So it's like they never stood a chance there. Um and then Embiid's been banged up over the past few years. So I'm not saying I'm not saying Doc is the kind of coach that's going to come in and be the reason they win. Like Spolstra is the reason that the Heat end up being really good in a lot of situations. Um, Popovich during uh, some of his runs with different various Spurs teams was a huge reason for why, etc. He's not going to be the reason that they win, but he's also probably not going to be the reason they lose. And Griffin may have been that. He may have been the reason they lost. And so I at least trust Doc to make sure the floor is at an appropriate level. 
Um, the ceiling, we could debate that all day, but I don't hate it if they do end up hiring Doc. Uh, there's not a lot of other options out there, though. I mean, I don't think they can continue with their interim coach. I think they are going to hire external. External. Those are all the reports. And ironically enough, the two next best options are probably Mike Budenholzer and Terry Stotts, two bridges that they likely have burned at this point. So Doc really might be their only option. I don't really know who else they're going to go for unless they try to poach someone off another team, but that rarely, rarely happens midseason. So um, we will see. But like I said, I think it's a smart move by Milwaukee. I feel better about them as a contender than I did. I would not be surprised at all if their defense starts to improve in a, in a different scheme. They go back to more of some of the things they did last year where they're putting Lopez and Giannis in a better place to succeed. They're not relying on guys like Beasley and Lillard to uh, have to put pressure on the ball as much because that's just not a thing that those guys are going to excel at um, over the span of a full season if you're running a whole system around that kind of thing. So, But now going over to the trade that actually happened today, uh, Terry Rozier was dealt from the Hornets to the Miami Heat in exchange for Kyle Lowry, who is on an expiring contract, and a 2027 lottery-protected first-round pick. Um, so the Heat have been pretty decent this year I mean they're they don't seem super different from last year they're 24 and 19 they're the sixth seed they're two games out of the five seed three games out of the four seed they've had their injuries Butler's missed 15 games Hero uh, missed extended time uh, earlier in the year he missed 19 games and then Bam has missed 10 games here and there so um, to find them in the sixth seed given all those games missed not overly surprising Spolster's done a, a really good job of maximizing what they have uh, as he tends to do and look Terry Rozier's having easily his best season as a pro at least offensively he's averaging career high in points per game with over 23 a game career high in assists with six and a half roughly is career high from the field 46 percent. he's still shooting 36 percent from three on seven attempts per game and he's got by far the best offensive advanced stats he's had throughout his career so i like the pickup for them especially offensively uh it gives them just another shot creator more shooting more offensive firepower um, things that they have lacked at times. I know they made the finals last year, but it was not off the strength of their offense. That was definitely their shortcoming. They were in the bottom five or six in the league last year in terms of offensive rating, and they did not shoot the ball well in the regular season. And I know it se- I'm sure if you're a Celtics fan, it seems like they shot out of their minds against you. But if you look at the stats, that's not really what happened. They did not shoot well. They just defended like hell and really made Boston uncomfortable on the offensive end. And so um, they did just enough offensively to be able to beat them. And same with Milwaukee, honestly. Butler played out of his mind in that series, but the team as a whole didn't go crazy offensively or anything like that. So um, I think that he's going to help them a lot in that area. I mean, outside of Hero and like Lowry sometimes, they really didn't have any reliable ball handlers that you could trust um, to either run an offense, go get you a shot, um, set up some of their actions. I mean, Jimmy Butler can do all of those things sometimes, but we know he's not a super, super high usage guy, at least until he has to be <laughs> come playoff time. Uh, but I will say it, it's it's weird because Terry Rozier actually came into the NBA as he was known for his defense, very good defensive player, um, and 
in his early years with Boston, he was exactly that. I mean, his off, his defensive rating his first four years when he was in Boston was 107, 108, 104, and 108. So really, really good across the board. Um, he excelled there, and he didn't play particularly well offensively back then. Uh, he was very, very inefficient. His shot took some time to develop, but um, he was a good got like player that you could bring in and he could hound the opposing team's um, lead guard. But then as soon as he got to Charlotte, um, his off defensive rating, sorry, bumped up seven points just that next season to 115. Then it was 114 the next year, 115 the next year, 117 last year. And it is all the way up to 123 this year, which is just abominably bad. <laughs> League average is like 115, 116 or something like that. So he is well above league average in terms of um, his defensive rating. So I... I think people probably aren't talking enough about that. This is he's been truly a one-way player since he got to Charlotte, um, and so it'll be interesting how he balances it. Can he still take on that kind of workload offensively, but also be engaged defensively? Um, or if he's super engaged defensively, is it going to hinder his efficiency on offense? Uh, because at this point, we haven't really seen him ever be a two-way player. He was kind of a one-way player on the defensive end to start his career, and he's been a one-way player on the offensive end at this stage of his career. But obviously, he's not going to be even a top three option on this team. He's probably the fourth option at this point for them. So um, some his efficiency might be helped just by that alone. And I think he'll be able to put more energy into the defensive end because he doesn't have to do so much shot creation because he can rely on guys like Hero and Jimmy Butler and even Bam uh, a bit as well. Uh, and plus, if anyone can fix his defensive uh, <laughs> woes in the recent years, it's probably Miami. I mean, they are the best in the league at getting the most out of guys. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a guy who left Miami and ended up being much better uh, or got to Miami and was worse than we'd seen in the past. So um, I think that he'll play better defensively. He'll be more engaged. He has not been on like a team that's even really sniffed the playoffs in a while. I mean, I know the the Hornets made the play in a couple times in his tenure there, but they got smoked in both play-in games they had. So I think overall really good pickup for them uh, because I do think they'll be able to get the most out of him defensively, and I think that the... Um, lowered offensive workload can actually help him with his efficiency over the span of a long run. Because, look, I don't know if what he's doing right now is sustainable. His volume is super high, and he's never shot this efficiently from the floor. Um, so I, I was a little worried if he was even going to be able to keep this up. But I think in a smaller role, it, it's more sustainable, not at that volume, but at least at that efficiency. Um, I do think they are going to miss some of the stuff that Lowry does, though. I, look, I know that he is... Clearly past his prime. I mean, he's since becoming a full-time starter, he's <laughs> averaging career low in points per game, career low in assists per game, um, career low in shot attempts. I mean, he's he's not the player he was. He's 37 years old at this point, going to be 38 by the time the playoffs roll around. His um, advanced stats are not particularly great at this point in his career. Um. And look, he's a bit washed. He's a shell of himself to a degree. I mean, he's definitely a shell of himself, but I just mean that he's not nearly, he's not a useful player every single night. He can't consistently have good games. He's He'll literally have games where he goes out and shoots one for seven or some nights where he only takes like two shots or something. 
But I still like some of the stuff he does for them. He had some really big playoff moments for them down the stretch last season. He brings a ton of leadership, uh, championship pedigree, uh, toughness. He's a high IQ guy. He's one of their best initiators and playmakers, even though it's not necessarily like he's high volume at doing those things, but he's one of the best they had at doing it. Um, so I don't want to act like dumping Lowry with some obvious move like, oh, he's totally washed, which he is washed, but I still think they're going to miss some of the little things he does that don't necessarily show up in the box score. Um, but given where they're at, I, th- I still think it's it's a good trade-off for them. I think Rogier can bring enough uh, his offensive firepower and uh, volume scoring and shooting and defensive potential at least is enough of an offset to make it worth it with the trade-off of what they're um, giving up getting uh, your trading Lowry. And overall, I think it's a low-risk move. I mean, look, they gave up an expiring overpaid player and one first-round pick, and they still have the flexibility to make a bigger move if they want to or need to. I mean, I know the Donovan Mitchell name has been floated around, and look, this with this uh, trade, they can't trade more than one pick right now, but in the offseason, they'll be able to trade two picks as well as two swaps, as well as Jaquez, who is probably worth at least a first, if not multiple firsts right now, and Harrow, who's probably worth a first or multiple first. So they have a deal that could at least be somewhat enticing to go get a guy like Donovan Mitchell if they wanted to in the offseason, even with the Rozier addition. So it's it's low risk. It doesn't mortgage their future. It really only helps them now because we know Rozier is going to be maximized with Spolstra and the Heat system. Um, and Miami is a sneaky contender, man. I know all the talk is Boston, and then people mention Milwaukee and Philadelphia after that. But the Heat are just doing their thing, riding under the radar like they always do. They're not being talked about. They're kind of chilling in that. Maybe we'll avoid the plan. Maybe we'll be in the plan. We don't really care because we're going to not be scared no matter who we play. And look, I think they're better than they were last year, if you look on paper. I mean, with a healthy hero, Jaquez looks like an absolute steal um, and a guy who could really contribute in a playoff setting. Um, and then the addition of Terry Rozier. I mean, those three guys alone offset anything they lost from like a Max Struess or a Cody Zeller or a Gabe Vincent. Like, they're improved from last year, in my opinion. I also think Bam has looked better than he did last year, particularly offensively. He's continuing to grow on that end of the court. We know how elite he can be on the defensive end, especially in a playoff setting, one of the absolute ideal big men you could have uh, for a playoff series. Um, But with that said, look, do I think they're the second-best team in the West? No. But (laughs) do I think they have the um, best chance of beating Boston? I (laughs) maybe I know that might sound crazy but like they've beaten them before with less I know this is a better version of Boston but it's a better version of Miami as well and so I just I can't rule them out I'm serious I think they can make the finals again I'm not going to pick it because no one ever picks it but they end up doing it so I I just I can't rule them dead I can't rule them out I can't say that they can't beat team X or team Y until I see them go down because that's just the kind of team they are and they're just tough as hell. And so they're going to be a tough out, whether they're the seven seed again, or if they work their way up to the four seed, it doesn't matter. I'd, I'd pick them over any of 
the Knicks, the Pacers, um, Cleveland, any of those teams. And then I think they got a real shot at beating Philly, Milwaukee, or Boston. Um, so <laughs> it'll be fun to see. Uh, and they might not be done. They could still make some moves as well to add to it. So, um, And then on the Hornets side of things, they did pretty well in this deal, I think. Um, getting a first-round pick for Rozier uh, is not bad. Considering his contract, if you had asked a year ago, could they move this contract where he's making t- like basically $25 million a year for the next three seasons if you include this one? I would have thought they maybe even had to attach a pick to that because it was a it was a big it's a lot of money to move seventy five million over three years or something like that. But look, they sold high. This was the perfect time to trade him because his value will never be higher than it is right now. Um, and so it was a good move. And then getting Lowry back it, it gives them options. They could flip him for a team looking for salary cap uh, relief in the off season because he's an expiring basically thirty million dollar contract or they could trade him to a team like the Knicks for like the Fournier contract and another filler and he would really help fill that backup point guard role and take some of the offensive uh, initiating responsibilities off of just Brunson for example or they could just keep him and probably buy him out and he might go somewhere but I do want to say that if he is bought out um the new CBA says that he cannot sign with any team that's over either the first or second apron um, just due to the fact that he makes more than the mid-level exception. So that rules out Milwaukee, Boston, Philadelphia, the Suns, the the Nuggets, um, the Clippers, the Warriors, and then the Heat. Uh, obviously, I don't think he would go back to the Heat. I also think there's a rule where if you get traded from a team, you can't uh, sign with them if you're bought out regardless. But... That's pretty much a lot of the main contenders. I mean, he could go to like a younger team like the uh, Timberwolves or the Thunder or a struggling team like the Lakers, which I'm sure the Lakers would love to have him. So it's an option. But if he wanted to be on a guaranteed contender, that that option's not really there for him. So he might even prefer just to be traded, um, but we'll see. But for the Hornets, I think that they should basically trade be open to trading everybody except for LaMelo, Mark Williams, and Brandon Miller. Those three guys, I think, should be off limits. Um, I mean, unless you were absolutely blown, blown away for Mar- a Mark Williams deal, because uh, obviously he's not going to be like a star, but he's a good young player that's shown a lot of promise to this point. I really like him as a rim-running big, but guys like Nick Richards, P.J. Washington, Miles Bridges, Gordon Hayward, I mean, all these guys should be on the table for them to trade. Hayward, his contract might be too big. You might have to just buy him out. We'll see if someone, like I said, would trade him just so they can get salary cap relief in the offseason. Uh, Washington and Richards, they're on uh, pretty reasonable deals. I know Washington just signed as a restricted free agent this uh, offseason. I believe Richards might be a free agent in the uh, either after the end of this year or the year after. But regardless, those guys are very movable. A lot of guys would like to have them. Richards would be a very good backup big and rim protector for a a contender. PJ Washington, a guy who is, uh, can stretch the floor, uh, at the four, play some small ball five, at least passable on the defensive end. And the miles bridge is interesting. Cause like he's on his one year qualifying offer, which if you accept your qualifying offer, you technically have veto rights on any trade. So he does have a no trade clause. So he could kind of work his way to any team he wanted to, if they want to trade him, I have no idea if they want to trade him. He's probably not worth very much. He's got his hearing in February for his uh, domestic abuse uh, or sorry, domestic assault, whatever you want to call it case. Uh, 
He's got some off-the-court stuff. He's not making a ton of money. He's a free agent at the end of the year, so I, I doubt you could even get a first-round pick for him. But honestly, if I was them, I would just trade him, get him off the team. That's not the kind of culture you want to build because you don't really have good culture right now anyway. So I personally would just move on from Bridges. But, yep, should be a fire sale for them. Wouldn't be surprised if they trade a lot of guys, and they should be active because they should want to bottom out because they're not a good team. They're not going anywhere. They're, they're not going to make the play-in. I know it's not a great draft, but you can just build draft equity, um, get more picks, whether it be for this draft or future drafts, uh, build around Mark Williams, Lamelo, and Brandon Miller, and, and kind of see where you can go from there. So, Lastly, I want to talk about Joel Embiid, the reigning MVP. Everybody knows he did win the MVP finally last year, and there were a lot of people who thought maybe that was a mistake giving it to him because Jokic was runner-up. A lot of people thought it was a toss-up till the end. They kind of mailed in the last couple weeks of the season because they had number one seed locked up. But then Jokic went on to win the finals and finals MVP, and Embiid once again flamed out in the second round. However, Embiid has come back even better than anyone could have imagined this season. He had 70 points last night, 18 rebounds, 5 assists. He was 24 for 41 from the field, only 1 for 2 from 3, and 21 for 23 from the free throw line. So he is now on the season averaging 36.1 points per game. He's also averaging a career-high 5.9 assists per game. Um shooting 54% from the field, 36% from three, 89% from the free throw line. Just an absolute monster, especially compared to other centers we've seen be this dominant in the past. The fact that he can shoot that well from the outside and then is a 90% free throw shooter as well, especially considering how much he gets to the line. But just to put into perspective how like this season for him is all-time good. This is all-time greatness we're seeing right now. I mean, there's only nine guys in the history of the NBA that have averaged 36 points per game. Wilt Chamberlain did it five times, no surprise there. Michael Jordan did it once, Elgin Baylor did it once, and James Harden did it once. Um, the difference here, though, Wilt Chamberlain, in the five seasons he did it, played 48.5 minutes per game, 47.6 minutes per game, 47.8 minutes per game, 46.4 points per game, and... 46.1 points per game. So he's playing basically max coming out for three minutes per game. He was 45 minutes plus basically all five of those years. Michael Jordan played 40 minutes per game the year he did it. Elgin Baylor played 44 minutes per game the year he did it. And then Harden played a little under 37 minutes per game when he did it in 2019. And then Embiid is playing only a modest 34 minutes per game. So, he is currently averaging the most points per minute in NBA history. There's not a single season where someone did averaged more. And that's one of those stats where normally you'd be like, since the merger or other than Will Chamberlain. Like, no, including every single season in the history of the NBA, including Will Chamberlain, shooting, including everybody, Joel Embiid is averaging the most points per minute ever, ever. And to put into perspective as well, he is having the most efficient 36-point-per-game um, season ever as well. He's shooting, as I said, 54% from the field. Uh, the next highest is only 52%, Will Chamberlain. Um, and there's four of these seasons they were sub-50% uh, from the field. I mean, when Harden did it, he was 44% from the field. Uh, when Elgin Baylor did it, he was 43%. Will Chamberlain had a 46 
percent season. Michael Jordan was only 48 percent. If you look at where they're shooting from two point range, Embiid's up at 57 percent. No one else is even at 53 percent. The only player who uh, shot better from three point range is Harden, and barely. Harden's a shooter. He's literally a shooting guard, is what he was playing back then. He was 36.8% from three and beats 36.3%. He also has the highest free throw percentage of any of these guys uh, and the highest true shooting percentage by a wide margin, 65% true shooting. The next highest one was Harden at 62%. Um, So (laughs) the guy is putting on an absolute clinic this season. He also has the highest PER for a player in NBA history, by almost three full points at 35.6. So he, I just wanted to put into perspective how good this guy's been because I don't want us to pass by this and think that, I just want us to appreciate it. This is an all-time great season. I know he's missed some games. I know he gets made fun of for only playing against bad teams and sitting versus the good ones. I know he gets made fun of for never playing in Denver against Jokic. I know he gets made fun of for losing in the second round all the time. And I know he's the only MVP in NBA history to never make a conference finals. But he is just unstoppable right now. And uh, not to mention he's got a 107 defensive rating, which again, league average is literally like 115. So he's one of the best defensive players. He's two-way player. He can score from outside. He, He's elite in the mid-range. He gets to the line better than anyone. He makes uh, free throws at 90% rate. He's completely unstoppable in the paint. He's having his best facilitating and passing season of his entire career under Nick Nurse. And it, he fits flawlessly next to Maxi. The Sixers, I don't know what ho- the future holds for them. Maybe they'll lose in the second round again, but it doesn't matter. This is a ridiculous Embiid season. And so just wanted to shout him out. Um, and just say how phenomenal he's been, and he is the clear-cut front-runner for MVP at this very moment, especially after the show he put on last night, scoring 70 points in a single game for uh, just the eighth or ninth time in NBA history. So, And that's going to do it for this episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. Thank you so much for listening. Um, I know trade season is going to pick up very, very quickly. The trade deadline's only a, a few weeks away. So as these trades start coming in, I'll, I'll start um, hopping back on and we'll talk about it some more. But yeah, I just had to, <laughs> a lot happened today. So I had to come on and uh, <laughs> chat about it. So, uh, But thanks so much for listening um, and I will chat with you soon. Thank you.